And now I'd like to um, introduce um, Keith, Keith Hayward, who um, is head of research here in the Royal Aeronautical Society. He came here from the Society of British Aerospace Companies, um, where, where he headed research and uh, public, um, public affairs there. And before that, he had an academic career, which he still maintains. And so it's very appropriate now to relate um, the, the field of research to Handley Page. So, Keith, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, early in my career, I realized that it was extremely risky to go into a room thinking you were the best informed person there was. And certainly today, I am well aware of that particular limitation on my own understanding of the life and career of Sir Frederick Handley Page and the aircraft that he and his company designed and produced. In some respects, there's a sort of it's a sad paradox that I probably know more and can contribute more originally about the latter stages of, of, of the Hanley Page story, having looked at the, the rationalisation of the um, aircraft industry triggered by one Duncan Sands in 1957, although it should be said it was his successor, Julian Amory, who had to carry all the angst and the, uh, and the embarrassment and, and, to some extent, the um, disappointment that Hanley Page as a company failed to make the cut, as it were, into the, um, the big two. But enough of that, and perhaps, mind you, we perhaps come on to that uh, in the discussion. But I'm going to focus, really, on, on what is, insofar as I'm able, uh, and again, I immediately admit my, my, my um, ignorance in detail of, uh, of Sir Frederick Hanley Page, though clearly I do know and have appreciated uh, throughout my career the importance of this company to the history of the British aircraft industry. But I want to take the sh shift the perspective a little bit. Uh, again, I, I apologise for not being here for, for Harry's uh, for presentation, at least the beginning of it, but I, I have a feeling this is the first time we address Frederick Hanley Page, the man. And again, this is where I start to get really nervous because I am not a biographer, I am, although I have had the great honour to, to, in a sense, uh, do a short biography of a sort of similar namesake, uh, Freddie Page. And there is a link... It's a conceptual link, which I'll come to in a little bit, between the two pages. But I think this is, the, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm also going to be parochial, because in a way my talk is about Sir Frederick and this society. And the impact that he had upon this society, from my understanding of, uh, 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 of the brief bits of biographical material I picked up, and some of the original um, reports in the Aero Journal, um, of the, 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 the early part of the last century, suggests just how important he was to this society. As I mentioned a minute or two, he, he gave materially to this society, but I think more important, he created a vision and a concept of a modern Royal Aeronautical Society that, in a sense, we have continued to this day. I mean, in that way, it's the link between theoretical knowledge, pioneering aviation spirit, a clear and direct link between academia and the scientific underpinnings of aviation and aeronautics. These were inspirational pioneering activities by Sir Frederick, and it's a tradition that we have built on. Now, I suspect just how oh, he would have loved build-a-plane competition. 
Oh, I'm sure he would have loved to see kids building aeroplanes. So in that way, you can see, you can see where I'm coming from here, that he, in a sense, has create, created an ethos and an atmosphere which, well, has made the Royal Aeronautical Society. 1907. That's when Sir Frederick joined the Royal Aeronautical Society. It was his, his first, first association predating the formation of his company by two years. Now, there's start-up for you. Join the Royal Aerosoc, two years later, create a company. How many people here building UAVs in their backyards? No? No? No. What a shame. I know, I, know, I know our chairman still builds bits of them, but um, whatever. In a sense, you, you had a, 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 a unique set of circumstances that you had a new set of aeronautical dub, uh, approaches joining a society which was already 40 years old. And although, Pat, interestingly enough, and I, 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 do, I, I do thank um, uh, uh, um, Brian Little for, Little for in the library for, uh, for, for pointing these things out to me, that his first contribution to the society was the fundamental analysis of birds. He was a member of the Bird Construction Committee, and it produced 470 individual analyses of birds, presumably trying to interpret how you could get better flapping wings into aeroplanes. Maybe. But if you thought Sir Frederick was pushed into some peculiar eccentric part of uh, a, a Victorian or, or, or late Victorian Edwardian world, you, you would clearly have a, another, another thought coming. Because in two years already, between 1907 and 1909, when he formed his company, he had won a reputation for shaking things up. Colonel J.D. Fullerton, the, sec the society's secretary at the time, recalled, At that time, Mr. Hanley Page was something of an enfant terrible and one of the most remarkable personalities in a cause which boasts of more young men's successes than any other. A man on the make... Stirring things up. By 1911, Enfant Terrible, if you'd forgive my um, metaphors, had become a young Turk, helping to organize an institutional coup d'etat that transformed the society. The new chief executive, beware. There are precedents. In 1910, Sir Frederick, well, then of course he was just Frederick, wrote to the Manchester Guardian, an estimable paper, it should be said. Having read Manchester Guardian since it's changed its name, I will appreciate this. Recording of the first changes in the society's rules since 1866. He writes, for all our boasting, or he inferred, for all our boasting that Royal Aerosoc was founded over 40 years before the Wright brothers flew... In the early 20th century, the prevailing attitude amongst many of the established members still reflected gaily, gliders and balloons. The Society of 1910 was also financially constrained. Oh, not much change, I guess. But much more important and perhaps significant, its proceedings had little impact on the world of aviation, let alone the wider world. In short, it was in a dead end. Flapping Victorian, late Edwardian dinosaur. The council was then self-elected and aging. I'll make no comment at all. I'm still hoping to have a job here for at least three years. 
Very little new blood was coming into the society. Well, young youngsters, we perhaps still have to learn a bit about that. Just when the world of aviation and aeronautics generally, and especially in Britain, was exploding, if not literally. 1909-1910, of course, as we know, saw the first UK-powered flight, the first flight by Britain, the first air exhibition at Olympia, and the formation of four or five of the UK's most important aircraft companies, including, of course, Sir Frederick's. Sir Frederick wanted a society to embrace these new pioneers, these young pioneers. Remember the average age of these guys would have been in their, what, 20s? He wanted a society to embrace this new young pioneering spirit, to create a vehicle that would promote the new science and technology of powered flight. And I underline here the science of technology of of powered flight. Although he would, I suspect, like many of his contemporaries, just love to bang bits of wood together, slap an engine on the front and fly it, he was reflecting, I sense, the Wright brothers themselves, who were careful, methodical experimenters. And I think he had the understanding that you would not progress, would not move the industry forward unless you actually understood the science and technology that made things work, as well as to anticipate failure. But what he saw in this, not this building, come on to that in a minute, in this society was a group of old fogies still trying and trying desperately to hang on to control. And quoting that uh, um, report from the Manchester Guardian, preventing its members taking any lively interest in its affairs at all. He went on to outline his manifesto for real change. Matters, he said, move so rapidly nowadays that traditions are no more use unless a body is sufficiently constituted and conducted by men. Oh, oh dear, not quite such a foresight that he might have had. By men, not only fully alive to the needs of the day, but also possessed of the quality of gauging the needs of tomorrow. He put all of his formidable energy from that point into pushing reform through this ancient society. He was a member of a committee, oh, committees, great, early in 1911, to consider the future direction of the society. In April... The report appeared, and a special AGM of 9th of June was convened to consider its findings. There was opposition, including a threat from some diehards on the committee to form their own society. One contemporary observer provided a superb description of this June AGM. And just think of, think of what it's like today, ladies and gentlemen when we have proceedings over in 20 minutes so we can get to the boozer. Oh, sorry, the the Royal Lancaster Hotel. From 8 until close to 11.30, the gentlemen are are, are supposed to do their best to aid the progress of this, the oldest aeronautical society in the world, did nothing but to raise a futile, but nonetheless effective obstruction to the scheme of reform that the fate of such an old society should be controlled so ineptly is almost a tragedy. And it would seem that the best and simplest thing for its members of the society is to resign en masse, so leaving the council without any society. 
Well, this is almost Brechtian in its viewpoint. Uh, I know uh, perhaps you know, understanding the, the works of a German socialist um, playwright aren't quite seemingly appropriate, but I quote from Brecht, the people have lost confidence of the government. The government has decided to dissolve the people and appoint another one. <laughs> well, the, that particular solution of, of, of creating societies without committees and committees without societies wasn't necessary. The old guard were trounced. The result was an unequivocal endorsement of change, both to the society's rules and orientation. In 1911, for example, the society established a technical grade. And Sir Frederick was elected to council. Always good to bring on the, bring on the reformers and shove them onto a committee. That's, uh, that's one way to new to them. But not in this particular case. The, the, the new world had been discovered and the society was again perhaps fit for purpose. Although it should be said the old guard could still exert a malign influence over the appointment of, for example, associate fellows. This was again an attempt to get the new blood on without having to go through the rigmarole of all the election, going through all, all the rest of it. Get the new guys on. They hadn't really qualified. You know, they'd flown aeroplanes, created aircraft companies, but hadn't really qualified for membership or for fellowship with less stringent requirements to attract younger members. The Council report for 1911, however, notes that several eligible candidates were prevented from election by the action of a small number. But more positively, the report adds, had this action frustrated the creation of a technical side, the society would now not have an asset, which the Council believes will, in course of time, become the most valuable feature of the society's constitution creating a technically oriented society, not just looking at the past, but looking forward. And I, think, I suspect, would it be a reward? I think it was a just action. In 1911, I think, Sir Frederick gave his first major lectureship to the society, setting a tone of genuine erudition and scholarship that would continue down the years. But for the moment, at least in chronological terms, in a way, Sir Frederick had more to occupy himself than the affairs of the Royal Aeronautical Society. And he went, of course, on then to create his company and begin that long, illustrious process of forging one of Britain's most important aircraft companies. By the way, it was also the, the year that we moved out of this little pokey home into Adam Street, the first real step towards becoming a proper learned society. Now, there are others later this afternoon who are going to describe in greater detail and with greater authority than I Sir Frederick's contribution generally to the theory and practice of aeronautics and to aeronautical engineering. But I have to say in passing, and again because it's partly, not that I was an engineer, but I do have a, a, an academic background, that I would refer to and note his early standing as a part-time lecturer on aeronautics at Northampton Polytechnic in 1910. There he is, founding companies, shaking up the society and lecturing. That's not a bad trio. That's not a bad uh, um, portfolio already. And throughout his life, he would continue to encourage and to support technical education, both within his own company and through bodies such as the Royal Aero Society. And I think he was, again, a pioneer in this respect. In like Germany and the United States, I would assert, we were rather slow in embracing generally the importance of technical education and theoretical learning in industry. 
And while the aircraft industry was somewhat more receptive, I think even into the 1930s, it was dominated by self-trained practitioners with on-the-job training. Things were changing in the 1930s, and I think you will find, of course, that Sir Frederick Hanley Page himself was embodied this new tradition with his own educational and research capabilities. But also then you had the new generation, Stanley Hooker and Freddie Page, people whom Fred, uh, uh, Sir Frederick would embrace. Others in the industry would be rather more suspicious of these whippersnappers with their education. Frederick was a key player in effecting this change. Going forward, by 1950, he was a leading player in the Council of the City and Guild, Council of the City of Guilds, a governor of Imperial College and chairman of the governors of the College of Aeronautics, Cranfield, which had been set up as a crucial recommendation of the Brabazon Committee. Back to his role of society. Post-war, he then becomes president of the society. A critical time here, demobilization and all that stuff. At the society, he helped to free the secretary, chief executive in modern parlance, from some of the day-to-day pressures from membership and its various factions. Although apparently this did not apply to the president himself interfering in the affairs of the society. There we are, presidents. Think on. President and later, Sir Frederick worked hard to ensure the society was viewed by outsiders as an important centre for aviation aeronautics. He was still speaking right up to the the Society's 80th anniversary dinner at the Guildhall, and he said, The RAS was educating the next generation so as to maintain the continuity of improvement. It was essential that all who had the necessary brain should be given the chance to contribute. We old ones must realise that youth can do the work, and possibly a better sight, a sight better than we. It should also be said that Sir Frederick was personally very generous to the Society. He donated in his second term the presidential badge and the Hodgson Cuthbert collection of aeronautical prints, still one of the world's finest collection of early aviation materials. Uh, and I believe also he might have put some, shoved some money into the general account, but I haven't had proof of this. He certainly gave 10,000 quid to the endowment fund, a very fine sum in today, today's fellow, today's uh, values, and was elected honorary fellow and awarded the gold medal for his contribution in aircraft design over 50 years. But, not only that, he helped the Royal Aerosol by, in a sense, having its own private SBAC Farnborough brackets, although it was, of course, at Radlett. For two years, he hosted a garden party when all the finest post-war projects were paraded before the society. Oh, that we had such links with the SBAC today. But it should be said, I think we should be proud that we are in the forefront of aviation and aeronautics as an engineering, as a scientific, and as a general aviation community. But it's one that combines academia and practice, a tradition which I think was almost entirely down to Sir Frederick Hanley Page. Thank you, Keith, for that fascinating perspective on Sir Frederick the Man and his links to the society and a lot of the things he was looking at in 1909 still have relevance today, for better or for worse. Could the uh, other speakers please come up here, Andrew and uh, Harry? And while they're coming up here, don't forget 
uh, the society would really appreciate it if you take the time and trouble to fill out the feedback sheets. It helps things in the future if you do that. It's in your pack. There are roving mics. Um, so now we're going to have um, a period of discussion before lunch. And um, a lot of material here to call upon. A wide uh, <coughs> spectrum of inputs about the company and the man. So, any comments? Thank you, John Chaplin. Uh, just worth mentioning, I think, as far as the uh, development of the aviation industry is concerned, is the very important part that Sir Frederick played in the setting up, setting up of the aviation regulation system. He was a leading light in the formation of the Air Registration Board and all that preceded that, and all, indeed, that succeeded it. And the other point, just to mention, uh, when Harry was talking about the uh, research, <coughs> research work of Handley Page, uh, he didn't mention the HP-88, which uh, I think was an, an attacker fuselage with an HP-87 wing. Am I right, Harry? Harry? Yes. The, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Um, the... HP88 HP was going to be a sort of scale model of uh, the Victor planform. It used an early version of the planform, not the later one. It was, um, I think it was an attacker, but it was a, certainly an attacker variety uh, fuselage. It had, a, it had a, a crescent wing, and it had a high tail, and it had air brakes, um, as far as I can recall. Uh, it... Um, didn't really uh, contribute very much. It, um, it uh, came apart in the air due to some uh, uh, very high uh, uh, induced oscillations in the, in the control system of the elevator. Um, and uh, uh, it, it didn't really sort of do very much at all. It, it was um, a, a bit of an irrelevance. Uh, the airplane had far overtaken it anyway. The design had changed quite considerably. Um, just reverting to your uh, mention of uh, ARB, yes, HP was always very keen on regulations, and um, he was, uh, I think, one of the prime movers in the Goral Committee. I, I, I hope I'm right in that. And um, really put the aircraft aviation business uh, in a very sound footing uh, on its regulation side. Thank you for bringing that up. Harry, you, you, uh, sorry, Andrew. No, on the HP88, just indicative of cross-fertilisation, I think I'm right in saying Blackburn's was subcontracted to yeah. put it together. And if you look at the air brakes on the Buccaneer, they're identical to the air brakes on the Victor. And they're beautiful air brakes, I have to say, when you used to operate them, they were beautiful. And I just thought it was a typical <laughs> example of people taking a good idea and... It might, uh, it might just be coincidental that uh, HP's Deputy Chief Aeronemesis, Rodney Melling, uh, defected to Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> Following on from that, Harry, how, how did uh, Sir Frederick have the time? He had the insight, the vision to say what's necessary for the industry, for training, the society, for the ARB. How did he have the time to go and physically go and participate himself, or did he have a staff of lieutenants that he used to dispatch? Uh, he had some very reliable uh, lieutenants, um, and they, I think, served him very well and uh, were devoted to him. Uh -huh. They really were. Uh, he himself was a big man physically. Uh, he was a big man intellectually. 
where he found the energy to do everything, I really wish I knew. Mm. But uh, he must have been very fit. He was, in, he was an incredible man to be near. Good. Any other questions or observations? Thank you. Um, Carl Smith, so he was with Handy Page in the 1950s along with Harry, um, but as a plumber. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've always, he's brought, the issue of Buccaneer and resemblance to Victor has been brought up, and of course Blackburn's involvement in the HP 88. I've always felt that the T-tail configuration of the Buccaneer may have had some relationship to the Victor as well as the air brakes, and I believe both aircraft exhibited quite remarkable flying characteristics in ground effect. Mm. Rumour has it that the Buccaneer can be flown hands-off at very low level. But also, I know from flight test reports of the 1950s, it's regularly said that the Victor was landed hands-off. <laughs> um, is there any direct connection between the aerodynamics of the two, do you think? Is this how you did it, Andrew? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think so, really. Um, the, uh, just referring to the hand, uh, landing hands-off on the Victor, that's the, that was a little quirk that seemed to happen all right on the Victor prototypes. But uh, Andrew will tell me if it happened on the production airplanes. I don't think it did. The tailplane was in a different position. Uh, the weights were higher and the speeds were higher. And I suspect uh, it didn't happen. It, it was a quirk. Which, it was an interplay between ground effect on the tail and the wing. And um, I don't think it happened on the production aeroplane. I, I never flew the Victor 1, but I know it didn't happen on the 2. But I think I always, my, I always remember my, my best man going for his ETPS interview. And they say, oh, what do you want, Victor? Ah, oh, right, now, will you explain to us why the Victor manages to do this hands-off? Because it was well known that it did it. I don't know whether the one did, or I do know that we, everybody knew that you could just leave it, and, and it just landed itself. Ahead of its time again. Any other comments, questions? Question over there. Thank you, uh, Patrick Hassel. Uh, I may be the uh, the youngest ex-Handley Page chap here. I'm not sure. I was 23 when the company folded underneath me, um, <laughs> or on top of me, perhaps. Um, it's character building. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it took me down uh, down to Bristol, where now I'm with the Rolls-Royce Heritage Trust. So I was um, fascinated uh, to hear that Volkert uh, was uh, very anti-Merlin. As the Bristol end of the Heritage Trust, where we do try to keep the old rivalries alive, um, I'm delighted to hear that news, and I shall be certainly use it in my, my uh, tours of our exhibition down there. Um, but uh, what I, I was going to ask was, uh, going on to a, a later Bristol engine, uh, whether the Olympus uh, was ever considered for the victor, and uh, uh, if not, why not? <laughs> and if it was considered, why was it rejected? Well, Thank uh, you. just... Uh, uh, going back um, oh, so many years ago, it's almost difficult to remember. But um, yes, uh, Volkert was uh, uh, never keen on uh, liquid-cooled engines. Uh, he, I think he'd seen the success that the Americans had had with air-cooled engines and uh, tried to push them to the greatest extent he could over here. But uh, in the case of Hercules, he had no opportunity to do otherwise because uh, they just weren't available. Uh, thinking about the Olympus, yes, the Olympus was in fact, uh, I, I can remember myself doing quite a lot of uh, feasibility studies with uh, Olympus in, in Victor II, and it was really the best engine for the Victor II. It uh, certainly gave you uh, a lot more height. Um, being a, a straight jet, uh, it didn't lose thrust uh, with height and speed as much as the Conway did, 
But on the other hand, it didn't have such a good fuel, fuel consumption. So it was a bit of swings and roundabouts, really. But the Olympus uh, was certainly considered very seriously for the Victor. But again, uh, Avro's beat us to it, and they cornered the market in Olympuses for, for uh, the, uh, the Vulcan. So we made do with the Conway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Which I, I, actually I, turned out to be a pretty good engine. I, I think, <laughs> Andrew? correct me if I'm wrong, the Sapphire 9 died with a thin-winged javelin, so the, the, the Sapphire family had died. Um, I remember this marvellous story, because this is an age of great men, you know, Old Man Ferry, Roy Dobson, Henry Canley Page. And I forget whoever the great knight of the realm it was running Rolls-Royce at the time, but there was this story of him and Frederick Hanley Page in the corner negotiating over Conway. And I think I'm right in saying the government said to Sir Fred, it wouldn't half help your case if you took on this bypass engine which is lined up um, for great things, and it would help, if you like, in the corridors of power if you took on this sort of development. Um, the trouble was, the, the really good top-of-the-range Conway, which is in the VC-10, I believe I'm right in saying you couldn't fit it in. To the, um, but even the one you had was very good, but it was a bit more... I have to say the Olympus was so simple and robust and rugged. It was, whereas the Conway obviously had all the great potential and, and certainly didn't seem to get much further than that. It was Olympus went on to Concord and couldn't Yes, the, the Conway had a much bigger air throughput and uh, caused the vector intakes to have to be enlarged quite considerably from the mm. Sapper. Sapper was a super engine. You could chuck any old air at it and it would work. <laughs> uh, not so the Conway, uh, which uh, I, mean, I think I'm right in saying that uh, almost the first time it was operated surged at about half throttle. And um, I think I, I can't remember how many surges they had, but they were many and loud, and that's why I'm wearing these here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the Conway had the um, commercial potential, didn't it, in America oh, yes. on the 707 and DC-8 as the first bypass engine. Um, any other? Just one thing before we go to the next question. Could you put your hand up if either you worked for Handley Page or you've flown their products professionally? Fantastic. Oh. oh, That should make for a good discussion over lunch. <laughs> Thank you. Mr. Another Chairman, question, comment. Nearly everybody worked for Handley Page at one time or another. <laughs> <laughs> they trained the world. Yes. Good. Any other comment, question? Uh, Frank Armstrong, uh, a former chairman of the historical group, and uh, perhaps I could open by congratulating Kit and the group in uh, organizing this quite excellent mm -hmm. Occasion, very suitable. Yeah, yeah. I'd like it, perhaps, if I dare, Mr. Chairman, to widen the discussion a little, especially in view of Keith Hayward's presence, who yeah. Keith has studied the uh, the growth and the struggles of the aircraft mm. industry throughout its time. Uh, he's written a lot of material um, uh, of a very perceptive kind. Um, we've heard this morning about the activities of a, of a great man, Handley Page, uh, a great pioneer, great energy, great ideas, um, who managed to put together a fairly small team, but of very able individuals and we've seen that there was a great succession of very advanced aircraft. And yet, 
it all ended so suddenly. And I've often thought about this, and I wondered whether we might spend a minute or two on this one, and perhaps I could invite, through yourself, Keith, to uh, speculate on whether there could have been a path by which Handley Page could have prepared his firm to survive mm. in the longer term. Uh, for example, during the mid to late 30s, when it was obvious that war was coming, um, could he have tried to build some stronger associations with, some associations, perhaps he didn't really have any associations with other firms. Mm. We had the Hawker Siddeley group growing. We had that sort of thing. Um, we had Bristol, which had an engine arm as well as an aircraft arm. Uh, is it imaginable that by uh, taking a different attitude, perhaps, or doing certain things in a different way, he could have prepared the way for the time when the aircraft business would require bigger units. Uh, you know, the government, uh, the government is often blamed for making hard decisions and putting people out of business and so forth, but governments do have to take a, a hard line on things, and it was quite clear, and you yourself, Chairman, referred to the delightful business of three V-bombers yeah. a few minutes ago. Could Handley Page have somehow got himself a bigger critical mass? Why don't we ask Keith to address that, and Andrew, and um, also Harry, because it's a vital subject that's still valid today. I'll, I'll try and be brief as possible. It's, as, 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 well, I would contend it's a, it's a, it's a hideously complex um, bit of history, and it does, as, as Frank in, uh, implied, um, stretch back a lot longer than the the events of 1957-62. Um, uh, and the evidence is not so good about the exact relationship between Handley Page uh, uh, and the government and um, Handley Page and the other companies. I think there's a, a strong element of truth in Frank's inference that Handley Page had not positioned himself or his company had not positioned itself particularly well. The, there are two crucial, two crucial strands. One was commercial jets, um, which, of course, de Havilland and Vickers were pursuing. Hamley Page at that point had not really got associated with a stro very strong civil, civil um, mainstream development. And, of course, the, the successful victory of English Electric and Vickers with OR339, having you know, sealed the, the one operational pro-jet and combat aircraft that Sandit Sands um, had authorised. So in that sense, already Hanley Page is being pushed out to the periphery of the, of the two emerging groups. Although it should be said, de Havilland was also sitting there rather uncomfortably with its own little mini-group, um, Airco. But to cut a long story short, the, the Hanley Page stream of development was outside this, this, this core of development which the government was prepared uh, either directly to or, or indirectly to, to support. And it should also be said that Sir Frederick, I think, was overly stubborn in ignoring the signs being written on that wall that the two groups' policy was going to be policy and anybody standing outside of it would find life very cold indeed. And I think that in itself um, was probably the one thing that, in the end, 
created a condition where Handley Page was finding itself very difficult to have been absorbed. In the end, it was left to the rapaciousness of the Hawker Siddeley group. And when I say rapaciousness, I'm, not, I'm using my word very carefully. They were extraordinarily commercially sad. They were going to close companies. They were going to close factories. Um, Arnold Hall had said this very... Uh, Dobson had said this very directly to, 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 to Duncan Sands. Oh, yeah, we don't think much of Bristol. We'll close them down. Um, we'll buy them. We'll close them down if they, if they were given the offer. Manly pays us a few bits there we might like. And I think when it came to that period, post-formation of Hawker Siddeley Avia, Aeros, A- Aviation and BAC... It was straight down what was Sir Frederick prepared to accept from Sir Roy Dobson, although later Sir Arnold Hall. And it wasn't as much, it was more than Hall and Dobson were prepared to pay. And it became even more prepared to pay when the Victor Cramp contract was cancelled. That was, I think, looking at the, looking at the documents, that was quite decisive. Because at that point, the shilling or 16 shilling offer that um, Dobson and Hawkers had offered went down to nine. At which point Sir Frederick said, I can live alone. And he couldn't. And the government made it sure that he wouldn't too. In spite of all sorts of mealy words about, and there's, there's some lovely purple prose in the record from Julian Amory this time, saying, oh, it's such an important company with all this heritage. We must keep it alive, must keep it alive. But they weren't prepared to go outside of the two-group policy. They wouldn't pump even a contract for laminar flow in the direction of, of Hanley Page. If Hanley Page had an idea, one of the other companies would subcontract them. And it was almost as patronising as that. But there was no doubting that the two-group policy, and in the event, Hanley Page's very stubborn views about where his company should sit inside the, or outside those two groups that, that killed his company. Can, can I ask Andrew if, if you'd like to comment, and then yeah. we'll ask, leave the last word to Harry, and then we'll break for lunch. I, I, Going back to the period you're talking about, which is pre this, how do you pick the winners? I mean, we look at 1947. Who is the company that's nominated to be the first break the sound barrier in Britain? It is Miles. I mean, for God's sake. I mean, not, not Avro, not Hanley Page, not, 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 not Supermarine. It, 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 it Miles and Reddy. I mean, and so, you take, you just take one over. No, I'm just trying to say that. How do you pick the winner to go for? And you could argue he tried to go for. I remember interviewing Sir Morian Morgan, who was the gentleman from RAE who had to choose between which of the V bomber specs were the right one. And I don't know if those of you knew Morian Morgan, but again, you, you didn't talk long before you realised that the complete unknown as to where people were going. So I suppose in his defence, who would he have picked to, to, to align with, in your words, I suppose, to, to be a winner? And I do detect when I was talking to Godfrey Lee later on that the company tried to diversify. It was into central heating radiators. was into sort of beer. I mean, you, they tried all these, and then eventually they realised that... I don't think you can accuse them of, of not trying to survive. Am I right there? Harry, can you have the final word on this? Yes, um, it's certainly true. They tried to diversify, but, uh, of course, it was a big, highly technical company, and it wasn't really suited to the commercial world. I mean, they're radiators. I, I still have one. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's stainless I steel. It, I even use it occasionally. It still works. High spec. But it was, it was very high spec, far too high spec for the average, average person and would never have made money. Um, and, uh, yes, they looked into continuous uh, malting process, which, uh, you know, more power to your elbow, literally. Yeah. And uh, they, they had a beautiful thing called the Jetstream Air Vator, uh, and um, I, I still remember the uh, the way the sales department 
pushed it out by putting a uh, very scantily clad young lady on a board and pushing her down this, uh, this sort of uh, uh, air conveyor. But no, they, they did, seriously. <laughs> they tried everything. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, they did, uh, they did try all sorts of things. Um, but uh, the board eventually came to the view in about 1967, I suppose it was, uh, that they were never going to survive on that sort of thing. Mm. And they, they would stick to what they knew how to, uh, to that which they knew how to do, which was build airplanes, and good airplanes at that. But unfortunately, the backing wasn't there. And uh, I believe that if they had got the Victor contract, which was you know, signed, uh, uh, well, not signed, but sealed and delivered, if you like, almost, yeah. um, if they had got the Victor tanker contract, the Mark II contract, uh, they would have gone on and done, and done very good things. For a few years, yeah. uh, it was inevitable they were going to have to combine with one of the groups. And I think uh, that would have happened in a few years' time. But in the meantime, I think they would have uh, uh, done some very good service. Um, the tragedy, in, in my view, my own personal opinion, the tragedy is that Laminar Flow didn't get off the ground. Yeah. And that would have been, we'll hear about that later. Thank, Thank you. you. Frank, how did those strike you? Very, very The matter of positioning oneself to be stronger later on. I had in mind particularly the behavior of the company before the war. Mm. Uh, we've heard a, a lot about the greatly respected mm. HP-42, you know, the wonderful mm. airliner with its great record. But um, by the mid-30s, people were thinking very differently. Uh, you know, the HP-42 suited the particular routes that it was on, and it was a delightful thing to fly in. But people were talking about pressurized airliners. DC-1s, DC-2s. Mm. Yes. Mm. And, um, you know... Could Handley Page have got into that area and formed stronger relationships? Well, let's so let's leave so to build the industry, his industrial industrial position better. Let's leave that question hanging there, and uh, let me, on your behalf, thank the three speakers today who I think have done Handley Page proud this morning. Thank you all. For thank you.